I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. We are called Lockdown TV because we began life on day one of lockdown here in the UK, and that is nigh on a year ago. We've been in and out of some form of extreme restrictions ever since then. And a lot of the decision of how we come out of it and what metrics we should use to come out of it involves modelling. Um, And there's even a special committee that advises the government called SPY-M, the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Modelling. And they feed into SAGE, the uh, government committee. And a member of that, um, I'm delighted to say, is joining us now. He's called Dr. Mike Tildesley. So you are one of these modellers and you are directly advising the government. So they are listening to you as to when they can start releasing restrictions and when life can start getting back to normal. What are you advising them? Whatever the government considers important at any point in time, SPYM may look at and provide advice to the government in terms of what should do. Now, the key thing here is advice. You know, we are advisors, we are not decision makers. And of course, the government have a range of different things they need to look at when it comes to making a decision as to what to do. But as far as we normal people are concerned, we really only care about one thing, which is when is life going to get back to normal? So given all these different investigations you're doing and the overall advice you're giving the government, what's your best guess? I think the key thing for us when it comes to relaxing lockdown is the need to do it gradually. We do know that any kind of relaxation is going to impact the R number. Um, But we do have some good news. You know, the vaccination campaign's going really well. Um, far better, actually, than I thought it would have done at the start of January. And um, if we can keep that trajectory going and these vaccines work and they have a high level of protection, not just from severe symptoms, but also in terms of blocking transmission, we could be in a position that by the summer we have dramatically eased lockdown. But it's really dependent upon getting a high level of uptake of vaccine, even in the non-vulnerable groups. So by the summer, dramatically eased lockdown doesn't sound that great, I would say, from what we were sort of expecting. You know, we, we, we were told when 
the big moment in November that the vaccines arrived, you know, as the Prime Minister said, you know, help is coming on the horizon. So we're going to stay locked down until the vaccines arrive. And vaccines have arrived. We're now really going through them at a pace. Uh, I think by, um, I think it's April, uh, most of the uh, over 65s will have been offered the vaccine and, and a little, little bit after that, the over 50s. I mean, at that point, the vast majority of potential deaths are protected via vaccine. What's, what's stopping us reopening at that point? So with the vaccines, it, uh, they, they have a high level of protection, possibly about, let's say, 90 percent, just to make it easy, 90 percent for severe symptoms. That's then 10 percent of the population that are vaccinated that are not immune. Um, now, if we have an R number of about one, then we will see the deaths and the hospitalizations go down dramatically. But of course, as we start easing things, then and the R number goes up, those people that are not protected are exposed to much more risk. And so that's where the concern comes in terms of significant relaxation, that we really need to wait until we have pretty high levels of protection across the population before we totally drop restrictions. So let me ask you a straightforward question. The answer may not be so straightforward, but when we first went into lockdown, it, the talk was of crushing the curve, um, the, the flattening the sombrero in order to make sure that we didn't exceed our NHS capacity so that the, the hospital healthcare system wasn't under too much pressure. According to your models, when will we reach that point at least? Well, I mean, arguably, in a sense, you know, we're, we're at that point already because we have seen the pressure starting to come off the hospitals and hospital occupancy is going down. So um, I think we've, well, we've actually done a pretty good job with this lockdown of suppressing infection. The R number is below one. There was actually some concern in January with the new variant that lockdown wouldn't be good enough to get the R number below one. And actually, we've achieved that, which is fantastic. So what would be the metric then? I mean, it, you say that we've already reached the point where you could argue the hospital system is not under pressure. If that's not the metric to turn around and start releasing things, what should be? Well, I think we probably are in that position now that we can start to release things, but we need to think about, well, OK, what's a priority? Now, of course, I think most people hopefully wouldn't argue about the fact that the priority has to be children. You know, we need to get our children back into school. That's extremely important. Now, if that is the priority and we don't want schools to close again, you know, in my opinion, we should be thinking about you know this 8th of March deadline that the government are working towards to at least open some schools whether that be primary or whether that be primary and secondary, that's that's more of a political decision than you know a scientific one. But we we look at that first, we monitor for a few weeks what the impact of that is, and then we move to the next step in the process. So in other words, then the metric, I mean I asked what, what the metric would be, you would say the R number, basically. So we should be releasing restrictions whilst keeping an eye on the R number. And if it starts to get above one, we need to slow down. But as long as it's beneath one, we're OK. Well, not quite. And I, I shouldn't really put all the focus on the R number, because, of course, you know, if you're in a situation. So let's say, you know, let's go back to what you were saying about vaccinating all the over 50s. So let's say we have a situation where the vaccine is really, really protective and no one's dying. And there's, you know, there's no one with COVID in hospital or even, you know, if the numbers are very, very low then actually, you know, if the R number is greater than one, you probably don't care. You know, if the virus is sweeping through the healthy population and no one's getting badly sick, that's acceptable. 
Um, and, you know, even if, you know, there's a low level of hospitalizations, then maybe that's also acceptable. So it's not just the R number. It's really the R number coupled with any kind of local prevalence, you know, if there are particular communities with high numbers of cases, or if there is evidence of hospitals starting to come under pressure, then all of these things need to be taken into account. If the vaccines are really good at protecting the vulnerable, um, then actually, as I said, the R number becomes almost irrelevant. And actually, we're really focusing on what's going on in the community, what's going in, in our, on in our hospitals. And if, if that's okay, then we could potentially relax controls further. So you are then uh, one of that group that says, as long as the pressure on hospitals and actual serious illness and death is not above a certain level, it's okay for the virus to sweep through otherwise healthy parts of the population. Well, I mean, we need to remember that this happens with viruses all the time. You know, we have this with influenza every year. And sadly, very many people die every winter from influenza um, and we don't lock down um, to manage influenza. So it comes down to and this is a you know, this is a very controversial topic for us to discuss. But actually, at some point, it needs to be discussed if we are not going to eliminate uh, COVID and, you know, the, uh, we would I would argue that that's probably extremely unlikely, certainly in the near future, then we do need to have that discussion. What are we as a society prepared to accept um, in terms of the numbers of people in hospital and the number of people sadly dying? You know, people die from all causes every day. You know, we have people dying from cancer. We have people dying from heart disease. And um, actually, you know, the cancer figures, yeah. 400, 450 yeah. people a day, you know, they're horrifying if they were reported every single day the number of people dying from cancer those figures would be really really scary mm. but we don't report them so no uh, you know at what level are we as a society prepared to accept it and i can't give you an answer to that but i think it's something we need to talk about if we aren't going to eliminate it at what point are we prepared to go back to normal and accept that covid's going to be endemic and every winter some people may die from it and we can do things to try to mitigate that with booster vaccines for the vulnerable. But at some point, we need to get back to normality. You said you can't answer that. And I respect that because you said it's a decision for society. But you could you could give us some potential metrics. I mean, I think the reason it's become such a political hot potato is that no one wants to say, oh, yes, this is an acceptable level of death. This is an acceptable level of illness. Might one possibility be to compare it to previous influenza seasons or, or sort of benchmark it against other diseases? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good way to think about it. I, I did. I, I realized that this was a problem actually last summer, because actually last summer, we were getting, you know, 10, 20 deaths reported every day from COVID. Um, and every time it was in the news, and of course, you know, I'm not trying to trivialize because every one of these people that died, they are someone's relative. And you know, that's really, really terrible for anyone who's lost a family member. Um, so yeah, with that said, you know, these numbers that were reported over the summer were far less than deaths from other causes. But as I say, we don't have this full list waved under our noses every day of these are all the people that have died from all of these different causes every single day. Um, and it slightly worried me that that was the rhetoric that was going on at that time. And it's, it's almost like, well, actually, this is probably something we can never get out of, that these COVID-related deaths are reported every single day. So, yeah. If we get below the daily deaths from flu, is that acceptable? Um, How about daily deaths from previous 
flu epidemics because it, there doesn't seem to be any flu at the moment. So. Well, yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, one of the consequences of severe controls is that the number of deaths we're getting from flu has gone down dramatically. But if we look at, yeah, previous winter flu outbreaks and if we can get down to, say, you know, deaths in November, December, January, when flu deaths are really high, being low or being lower for COVID than they were for flu or comparable, you know, is that something we are prepared to accept? And I think these are the types of discussions that we need to have. And I mean, yeah, as I said, I can't give a number on that. And, you know, I'm sure I would get vilified if I did give a number on that. Um, but I think it, it needs to be part of the conversation going forward that no one wants to stay in lockdown forever. Are you being asked by the government to come up with ideas around that? Uh, I mean, do you have any sense from the, those discussions of, of whether the government is thinking like this, that they need to sort of identify what an acceptable level of COVID would be? I mean, I think I would say that certainly that's not something I've looked at and I'm not aware that it's something that others within SPYM have looked at. At some point, though, we do need to turn to the future if, as I say, we do get into the situation where COVID is around, particularly, of course, if we start to get waning immunity. You know, if the we're not going to have lifelong immunity either from natural infection or from the vaccines. And so it may be that we have this like kind of low lying endemicity of COVID that's just around pretty much for the foreseeable future. So I suspect maybe once we've got through these this wave of vaccination as we get into the summer, that might be start to become a really key conversation, particularly when we're thinking about what are we going to do next winter if COVID starts to emerge again. What's your view of the group that call themselves the zero COVID uh, campaigners? And they're scientists and some politicians and, and activists who basically say that we cannot rest we cannot fully release restrictions until the case number of COVID is zero. Uh, do you think that that's kind of, is it, is it irresponsible? Are they taking it too far? Is it, or is it actually a legitimate argument? I mean, I think it's extremely naive because I think the problem is that, um, and a, lot of, a lot of people use the example of Australia and New Zealand, you know, and say, oh, well, we look at New Zealand, they've managed to do it, why can't we? And I think this is not a reasonable comparison. You know, we have a, massive population density compared with New Zealand. We are massively internationally connected compared with New Zealand. New Zealand have done a fantastic job. They've stamped it out rapidly and I would never criticise what they've done because I think what they've done is incredible, but they were always going to be in a much easier position to eliminate COVID than we were. Um, so well, we have a problem theoretically. It's also no, worth, worth mentioning, sorry to interrupt, but Within the last few days, Auckland, the biggest city in New Zealand, has gone back into lockdown on the basis of three cases in one family. And the Melbourne Tennis Championships, the Open there, which has been talked about a lot as this kind of dream scenario, uh, has also had to shut to all visitors because that city has gone back into lockdown. So actually the kind of zero COVID dream may be more fragile than we were told. You're absolutely right. And that's just an extremely good point that um, in a way, yes, you could achieve zero COVID. But the only way you can really achieve zero COVID and stay with zero COVID is to achieve. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Zero COVID internationally, because you are always going to be under that risk of reintroduction. And I think this is the problem. So, yes, Theoretically, we probably could. You know, if we went into severe lockdown for the next year, banned anyone coming into the country, we could probably get to zero COVID levels. But this is just not practical. And if we go into these kinds of severe restrictions, there is long term harm and not just economic harm. You know, if we if we stay in lockdown for another 12 months, there's the potential for more people going into poverty. And that has negative health implications as well. So I think, you know, this is. These are the things that, you know, it's a pipe dream, in my opinion, to think about achieving that um, unless we focus on an international stage. You know, you said it's it's naive, it's a pipe dream. Is it actually dangerous? Because a lot of these scientists who are talking about zero COVID, you know, it is a, pretty much the formal position of the Scottish government, zero COVID. It's very much talked about in Ireland. Uh, the Welsh are interested in it as an idea. You know, they have a lot of influence um, and you know, to me, it's more than that kind of new type of society where we have entirely closed borders and everybody is in a sort of permanent state of anxiety about a single new COVID outbreak is more than an inconvenience. It's a sort of dystopia. Well, I think this is absolutely true. I mean, I've been reading these quite worrying reports of some scientists coming out and saying there'll be certain measures that we will have in place forever. And I feel that's actually, I find that very, very scary. You know, I think that... um, I mean, even things like, you know, um, if we think about, you know, some people have been suggesting we will have masks in public places forever. You know, I worry actually about the long term mental health harm and developmental harm for our children. You know, there'll be some really young children that won't be used to actually interacting with with strangers, with people not in their family because they never see their faces. You know, I can understand the need for these restrictions now. But I would hope we would be trying to achieve a society where in the long term we can get back to some semblance of normality. You know, there may be certain things that actually we take forward, you know, better hygiene, making sure we wash our hands, maybe using hand gel when we go in and out of places. These are things that actually are pretty good practice and we could continue to observe. But I think we are a sociable society and I think we should try to achieve at least getting back to some level 
of being able to interact with people that are not in our immediate family. And I do worry about a lot of the rhetoric that suggests that there's going to be some level of controls that we're just going to keep forever. Do you think your approach to this is winning the argument? Or do you think the kind of zero COVID approach is winning? How about within the spy M kind of committee? What's the what's the split would you estimate? I mean, I think I, I'm always very clearly I can't talk about what you know, what the other opinions of people are on spy M. I think, you know, that's um, yeah, we have very, very clear guidelines on spy M that I can give my own opinion. How about within your within the scientific community that you inhabit i mean i i i am aware of you know people who have you know been going down the zero covid argument but i would ex i would suspect that most um infectious disease modelers are probably of the opinion and this is just my suspicion are probably of the opinion that we're going to be looking more long term about this becoming endemic and us trying to manage it endemically for the foreseeable future so the argument they come back with I mean, there's a couple, aren't they? One is it's irresponsible to allow any pool of infection because that's how mutations arise. And then, of course, long COVID as a rapidly more and more understood um, potential condition of COVID is another one. So they're saying, actually, it's no longer acceptable to say there's a, there's a level of COVID bubbling underneath. We actually need to eliminate it. What would you say to those arguments? I mean, I think it goes back to this level of risk. I mean, in a sense, you know, they're right. If you only care about damage to damage to health, then of course, yes, you put in very, very severe interventions. And I think the problem is there are damage risks to health by COVID. Damage to health by COVID, absolutely. Um, then yes, you take a very, very cautious approach and you stay in lockdown until you've eliminated it. But it's about balancing harms. And I think this is the thing. And again, to go back to the cancer argument, right? You know, if we look at 400 people dying every day from cancer, we could ban smoking, we could ban alcohol, we could force people to take an hour of exercise every day. That would reduce the cancer figures dramatically. But we're not a society going to do that. And maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be suggesting this because this might be something that, um, but you know, it's one of these things, it sounds flippant, but it's true. You know, we could do all of these things to try to reduce people dying from other causes, but we don't. Um, and we we accept a level of risk as a society to have some semblance of a normal life. And I think there has to be some balancing act where, you know, I mean, I read these reports. And How about I think, not you know, even some semblance? I mean, maybe like experts such as you need to start saying in media interviews, normal life, not just some semblance of normal life to try and... Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think you raise a good point. I mean, I, you know, I've been reading, so I have, you know, I have an elderly grandma, you know, right? I have a grandma who's in her 90s and um, I have children, you know, and my, you know, my children have not seen their great gran for months. And, you know, she's in her 90s and she's very healthy, but we don't know how much longer she's going to be around for. And actually, if you're talking about going into lockdown for the next three years, she could actually lose all of that potential time of interacting with her great grandchildren. And I think this is one of those things that actually the very elderly might want to have more time with their loved ones. And if we are dictating, we need to get to zero COVID so everyone stays in lockdown, we're depriving those vulnerable who actually were setting out to protect from having a life. And I think this is what we need to think about for the next you know, months and years about balancing that and having, you know, balancing the need for a normal life against the increased risk that that might bring. So has your grandmother been vaccinated? She has, yes. So when she's had her second dose, and you've allowed a three-week period for that to 
come into effect. Will you start seeing her again? Well, if it if it is legal to do so, then yes. I mean, should I think it this be? A, do you think? I think if we've got infections to low enough levels, then one of the things that should happen probably sooner rather than later is to allow some mixing within family groups. I think even you know, there's even an argument for this for people's well-being before we think about non-essential shops opening. You know, I think actually families who don't live together being able to be together actually I think is pretty important. I, I mean, I, I should imagine a lot of people, if they were given a choice between going to a non-essential shop or seeing their grandma, would probably pick the latter. So I think there is an argument for allowing that to happen sooner rather than later if we continue this trajectory. The strange thing is that you've had to get, you gave quite a nuanced answer to that. But, you know, if you've got a 90-year-old grandmother who's actually been double vaccinated and you haven't been able to see her for, I mean, it's a kind of no-brainer, isn't it? Every, everyone would, you know, she will no doubt want to see you and every person in that situation, whether the government advises it or not, is obviously probably just going to see their grandma. Well, yes. And I mean, but I'm sure you can appreciate I'm in a very difficult role that, you know, I have to be very, very careful to follow the rules. Um, you know, there have been some high profile incidents of scientists in the past to advise government not following the rules. We had one um, of them on our show. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we obviously have to take responsibility that, you know, I need to say and I need to follow that and say, you know, I, I yes, I want to. But whilst it is illegal to do so, I'm not going to. And I think that's where you can argue that more of you know we should be allowed to see our, our elderly loved ones when they've been vaccinated. Um but unfortunately, I'm in a position where I've got to wait till the government says it's legal. Do you worry that we've sort of, in, during this stressful, difficult year, all gone a bit crazy and that even, you know, governments are copying each other. There are lots of very vocal scientists saying things all the time and making life sound very frightening. Do you think that we've, we've actually sort of lost the plot at all? I mean, do you, do you, are you worried about the the sanity of the public conversation around these kind of issues? Well, I think, again, it comes, I think, obviously, it's dominated our entire lives. I think, you know, every conversation you have with anyone is about COVID and about the risks associated with COVID. And I do think sometimes, um, you know, we've lost the ability to balance risk. Um, and I mean, I will, you know, I'll wind all the way back to April and I'll give you an example. You know, I have young children at primary school. And, um, you know, I remember discussions going around about uh, the potential for children to go back to primary school in April. And I remember so many parents coming out and saying, well, I'm not going to send my children back. I'm not exposing them to risk. And of course, as an epidemiologist, I was telling them at the time, well, look at the data. You're actually more likely that your child will die in an accident on the way to school than they will die from COVID in school by getting an infection in school. And I think this is one of the things I find really frustrating, that we should not ignore the risks. We should never ignore the risks. But we seem to have lost the ability with COVID to actually balance risks or even understand what the risks are. You know, people go on aeroplanes, people go skydiving. You know, there are risks associated with those things. And the risk of children being in school is extremely low to the children. And I think that's the thought, something that really amazed me that actually people where the pandemic was concerned lost the ability to do that kind of risk benefit analysis in their own heads. I think a lot of people watching will conclude this is quite encouraging because this guy seems quite sensible and he's in a formal position advising the government. Maybe all is not lost. Maybe there are some kind of people with their heads screwed on in positions of influence and maybe everything will be all right after all. 
there is a lot of people out there who are, are frightened that the conversation has got so extreme and people keep talking, of, as you say, about forever measures and the new normal that somehow they won't be allowed back to their normal lives. Do you think the, the people with more common sense will prevail? Is your sense that you're, you're winning this argument? Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I think I can't judge on whether I'm winning this argument, but I go back to what you said, actually, when you used the word dystopian. And I think actually this, I remember having a conversation with my brother about six months ago um, and about the, the new normal. And we were saying the whole idea of the word new normal sounds a bit 1984. You know, I think it does sound dystopian. You know, I, in a sense, I'm not arguing with measures that have been introduced in terms of the need to reduce risk. But actually, I would want pretty much mostly the old normal, you know, with the caveat of, as I said, making sure we continue to observe these good hygiene practice and all these things that, you know, I'm much better about washing my hands now. And actually, you know, that is something that I have no problem continuing to do in future to be really careful about, you know, washing my hands when I come into the house, you know, if I've been in the garden, coming back in and washing my hands, you know, these are all the sorts of things that are, we should have been doing anyway. But I think as much as possible, I think I think we shouldn't be striving for a really a new normal. We should really want as much as possible the old normal back. So actually we can see our loved ones. We can have that level of social interaction. We're, we're a social species. And I think, you know, a lot of the dystopian discussion of a new normal actually really scares me because I think we lose that level of social interaction that actually keeps us going. We don't talk enough about mental health. And actually one of the big challenges in the last 12 months, I think, has been to mental health of, you know, everybody, actually, you know, not even people who maybe, you know, suffered more from mental health challenges before the pandemic, but actually an awful lot of people who probably because of the pandemic have really struggled with their mental health. If we're going to get the old normal back, and I think uh, I, for one, certainly hope we do, when do you think it's most likely? Obviously, you can't give a, you can't give an exact prediction, but you know, you, you know more than most about how these conversations move forward. When do you think life will feel normal again? What's your best guess? I mean, I hope that um, at least by the autumn, we're getting close to that. And I think the, um, I think, Not the summer. I, think, I think if we do better, if we do better with the vaccination campaign and we get really good uptake, then I could get more ambitious. Now, I would say the summer, but I don't want to do what frustrates me that the government do, which is set a deadline that they can't keep. So my, if I'm casting it a little bit further into the future and then it happens earlier, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And I think the, the reason to maybe cast it a little bit later is to really encourage as many people as possible to say, my hope, my, my belief is by the autumn we'll be pretty much back to normal. But if we do really well with people taking up the vaccine, with people continuing to obey the restrictions that are in place now, we could do it as early as the summer. Okay, Dr. Mike Tilsley, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Uh, that was Dr. Mike Tilsley, who is a member of SPY-M, the uh, modelling uh, advice group uh, to the government here in the UK, um, giving us some hope, I would say, that the old normal may not be lost forever. Whether it comes back sooner or later remains to be seen. And whether he is successful in convincing people to let us have it back also remains to be seen. But thanks to him, don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 